Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that always keeps a calculator handy for writing basically the script for just about every episode. And, you know, I'm not trying to brag here, but I wonder how many other podcasts are constantly keeping a calculator next to them as they write. (laughs) Maybe all of them. I don't know. I just love a calculator. Anyway, I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 160. This week's episode is part two of a three-episode series examining the ethics of secondhand resale. This is a massive topic that honestly seems to be getting bigger as I continue to explore it. That's why we need three episodes to tell you everything, and we still won't tell you everything. Fortunately, throughout this series, I'm being accompanied by one of my favorite all-time guests, Alex of St. Evans. In this three-episode series, we are examining the five major arguments that are kind of thrown out there to argue for the unethical nature of secondhand resale. You've heard, okay, maybe you haven't heard, but you've seen these all before. Thrift stores are designed to be a resource for low-income people. Resellers are making tons of money from taking things that should be for low-income people. Resellers are taking all of the, quote, good stuff. Resellers are responsible for rising prices at thrift stores. And lastly, resellers misrepresent what they're selling. They list things at wildly inflated prices and overall behave miserably both online and in person. You will notice that we are referring to these as myths throughout the episodes because we will be actively debunking them while also digging into the incredibly complex nuance within each of these issues. That's why it's a three-episode series. This This is something you're never, never going to fully explain or fully discuss in 10 slides on Instagram or in a 90-second TikTok. This is very complicated and it takes a lot of time to explore it all. After many, many hours of research and reading regarding all of this stuff, I can say that these five arguments are largely myths or at the very least, oversimplifications of much more complex situations. And these issues encompass many other dark realities of living in late-stage capitalism, including, but not limited to, why aren't people being paid a living wage? Why is housing so unaffordable? Why is healthcare a freaking luxury here in the United States? Why do credit cards exist? Second question to that one is, Why do you have to have a credit card in order to have credit? Um, Why is the social safety net or really the lack thereof failing so many people? Why must education be a financial burden for the rest of our lives? Why do so many of us have to work multiple jobs just to survive? And lastly, why is the fashion industry making billions, just billions of dollars, churning out clothes that are so low quality, no one wants to wear them for very long when they're brand new, and definitely they don't want to buy or wear them secondhand. Whew. That's just the beginning of the list, too, really. I could I could do this all day. <laughs> 
In last week's episode, we tackled the first two myths. Thrift stores are designed to be a resource for low-income people, and resellers are making tons of money from taking things that should be for low-income people. I recommend going back and listening to the first part of this series if you haven't already, because really all of the pieces are going to fit together. I planned it that way. (laughs) So to get the full effect, to know where we are in this episode, it's important that you listen to the previous one. In this week's episode, part two of three, we will be unpacking two more myths. Resellers are taking all of the good stuff, and resellers are responsible for rising prices at thrift stores. Alex and I were incredibly detailed about our research and preparation for this series, but I've also been doing even more research for a series that is running in tandem with this one for my other podcast, The Department. That miniseries is all about the history of secondhand shopping as a social and retail trend. And it's been so fascinating, so illuminating, so thought-provoking for me. As that series has developed, I've been discovering even more information and ideas and trends. And I've been having more time to think about all of this stuff than I had when Alex and I recorded our conversation a few weeks ago. So while I think our conversation was very comprehensive, uh, I keep coming up with other things that I wish I had said then or that I want to expand upon here. And so that's where the introductions to these episodes have been coming from. The first myth that we're going to be tackling in today's episode is that idea which I see all over the internet all the damn time, including in the comments section on Clothes Horse Instagram posts, is that belief that resellers are taking all the good stuff. Super heavy quotes. Can you hear my fingers moving? We're going to break down all the reasons why it might feel this way, but not be completely true in our convo. But there's something I touched on briefly when we talked But I didn't go into too deeply because I hadn't yet written two 32-page scripts for the department yet. And it kind of added even more color to this idea, even more history. And it made me aware of even more of a trend within the secondhand realm that has been coming up time and time again. In fact, so much time and time again in the 30s, then again in the 70s, again in the aughts as the Great Recession was in full swing, thrift stores have seen two things happen when the economy is not good. Their sales go up because more people have less money for the things they need. Check. Totally makes sense. And the volume of donations goes down, which does, when you really take a step back, just take like five, 10 seconds to think about that, you're like, yeah, that also makes sense. There are two primary reasons for the reduction in donations. First, people hold on to their stuff longer because they have less money to buy new things. And secondly, people will try to resell their unwanted items on their own to make a little bit more cash rather than just like straight up donating them when then no money comes back into their pockets, right? In the 1970s, people opted to sell their things at yard sales and flea markets. And thrift stores felt that decline in donations. 
in the aughts, people were now living in the internet age, so it was even easier to resell their things on their own via eBay and Craigslist. If they wanted to make selling their stuff even easier while making, you know, a little bit less money, they could go to any number of consignment and sort of like buy-sell trade stores that were on the rise in that time period. And that included places like Buffalo Exchange and Plato's Closet. These buy-sell trade retailers saw huge growth during the first 10, 15 years of this century as people were like, wait, I could make money off of the things I don't want anymore. There were also, at that point in the aughts, similar places for selling children's clothing, records, books, sports equipment, and music equipment. There is no way that thrift stores didn't feel a shift in what they were receiving at that point via donation, even with just a subset of the population starting to resell their stuff to these stores rather than dumping it in the donation bin. During those years, during the aughts, and well, kind of like my whole life, I've moved around a lot for my job. And so I don't want to brag, but I'm practically an expert in paring down my belongings in a way that gets maximum cash back into my pocket. In the past, I would start by taking my clothes to Buffalo Exchange or something similar. And whatever they didn't take, I took to another buy-sell trade store that was out in the suburbs where they they kind of took different stuff, right? Whatever was left after that, I might sell at a yard sale for super cheap. I would let my friends take anything else that interested them. And anything left after that went to a free box outside my apartment or off to a thrift donation bin. The point is that many of us have these different paths. This is what you do when you're part of the working class, right? You you need every cent that you can get, right? We can't just like buy, buy, buy and throw, throw, throw. Although a lot of people do. I often find myself comparing the 2020s, which is, I suppose, what we'll call the decade we're living in now, even though it's not very creative. I often compare the 2020s to the 1970s, politically, economically, and socially. And once again, we're in this time where people need every last dime. Straight up giving something to a donation bin seems wasteful. And now it's easier than ever to get a little bit of extra cash by selling these things. We still have the buy-sell trade stores, who I'm sure are feeling the impact of all of those online platforms now. And then the list of ways you can sell your stuff online just grows every day. Let's see, we got Poshmark, Depop, eBay, Etsy, Mercari, Vinted, Facebook Marketplace, a personal favorite in my household, uh, Craigslist, Nextdoor, Discogs, which is just for records, Reverb, which is for music equipment and definitely used a lot by one Dustin Travis White. That's just the beginning of this list. And more and more people are opting to rehome their things in their community via buy nothing groups, clothes swap, and mutual aid. Or they're just holding epic yard sale estate sales. What this means is that probably the least desirable stuff is making its way to the thrift stores, at least in the middle class, working class neighborhoods. And what I mean by that is the stuff that wasn't good or best enough to be sold through any of the various channels that I just listed. You know, something that has become very apparent during my research for this series and for the department is that thrift stores sort of rely on overconsumption for their business model. And this goes back basically like 100 years. 
It's not that they're looking for their customers to overconsume per se, although it does help, but rather their donors, as in the people who are donating the product, need to be overconsuming in order to, for thrift stores to succeed. There is a direct correlation between shopping and donation. If donors are constantly buying new stuff and upgrading their furniture and home goods and electronics and everything else sooner than necessary, then the thrift store benefits from a steady flow of newer, constantly increasing inventory. And the relief of donation makes buying new stuff easier than ever because you don't have to deal with the burden of the old stuff. In a time where more and more people are cutting back and or trying to turn unwanted things into cash, it is the wealthiest donors who have to do neither of these things. It allows them to rely on the ease of dumping their stuff in one foul swoop at the thrift store. The thing is, and this definitely alarms me, that despite more and more people selling and rehoming their so-called best stuff rather than donating it, thrift stores are still seeing all-time record high donations. It was different in the previous decades I mentioned earlier, like the 70s and the aughts. In those decades of economic difficulty, thrift stores saw their donations decrease by as much as 10 to 20%. And it made them hyper-competitive about procuring donations. They would like go on a media blitz, take out ads everywhere they could. They would even twist the arms of volunteers to just give, give, give. This time around, thrift stores are still receiving a constant deluge of donations, but so much more of it is low quality or undesirable, often even straight up trash. Ultimately, while secondhand clothing might seem incredibly valueless to some people, or at least extraordinarily less valuable than new clothing, there is still so much money involved in secondhand clothing. Money to be recovered when individuals sell their stuff. Money to build a micro-business for resellers. Millions to be made for the platforms and retailers and thrift stores who have gotten into or were always part of the secondhand selling game. We know that resellers are making money from selling secondhand clothing, but probably not making bank, as Alex said in the last episode, despite all the rumors otherwise. But who is making bank and lots of bank at that are the various platforms and services that are the technological and sort of like logistical backbone of the resale industry. First, we have the platforms themselves. And the revenue... I got to say, the money involved is pretty wild. It even shocked me as I was researching this, even though I knew it was a lot of money. It's like, wow, you want to talk about making bank? You know, I mentioned some of these numbers in the last episode, but I I just want to revisit them again, right? Because it puts everything I'm going to talk to you about after this in context. Poshmark had $350 million in revenue last year. Depop had $552 million last year. Mercari, $1.2 billion. Etsy, $2.5 billion. And eBay, 
coming in at the top, even though so many people have forgotten about eBay. Not me, not the McCarty White household. I can assure you, big fans of eBay over here. $9.79 billion last year alone. None of these platforms sell anything. They just create and maintain the platform. If they are selling anything, it is the platform, the access to customers, the logistics offered to the sellers themselves. And so therefore, the sellers are really the customer of these platforms, right? And these platforms collect a cut of all the sales that happen along with other fees. Some might provide customer service to the buyers, others do not. And the fees these platforms charge is not insignificant. I asked everyone on Instagram in stories this week to give me an idea of where their fees were coming in. And I gotta tell you, it might not sound like a lot, at first, but then when you start breaking down, it does become a little bit concerning. So eBay has a kind of a complex schedule of fees based on category, but I will say for clothing and most items, not all, eBay takes 13.25% of each sale plus 30 cents. You're going to hear plus 30 cents an awful lot over the next few minutes. Seems to be the plus number that everybody has decided on. So you say 13.25%, what does that even mean to me? It doesn't sound that much. Like if someone said there's a 13% chance of rain today, I'd be like, oh, it's definitely not going to rain today. Like that's such an insignificant chance, right? Well, if you sell something for $20 on eBay, eBay takes $2.95. That includes the 13.25% and that plus 30 cents. So let's say you bought something for $6 at the Goodwill. You sold it for $20 on eBay. That leaves you $11.05 in profit after selling the item before we deduct things like packaging, laundering, mending, the time you spent sourcing, listing, packaging, etc. It also assumes that the customer paid for shipping, which we know doesn't happen as much as it used to, right? If you sold that item for $10, you know, trying to keep it more in line with the price at the Goodwill, because you don't want to be accused of gouging here, right? You're left with $1.05 after eBay's fees, the cost of that shirt in the first place. And that also assumes that the customer paid for shipping. $1.05. That's not even worth your time at all. So you can start to see why resellers are marking up significantly beyond the thrift store prices. Yet one can argue that even that $20 price is a hot deal for something you don't have to find on your own and it shows up on your doorstep clean, mended, and ready to wear. Well worth $20, right? Unless you think that secondhand clothing really doesn't have value, then you might turn up your nose at that. Okay, how about Poshmark? It gets even more complex. Maybe complex isn't the word I'm looking for. Depressing when you look at Poshmark. So for all sales under $15, Poshmark takes a flat commission of $2.95. That means if you sell something for $10 on Poshmark, that fee is almost 30% of the sale value, which is pretty exorbitant. That means if you buy that shirt for $6 at Goodwill and try to sell it for $10 on Poshmark, you're once again left with like a dollar when the transaction is complete. That assumes that the customer paid for shipping. 
For sales of $15 or more, you get to keep 80% of your sales and Poshmark's commission is 20%. So if we take that $6 shirt from the Goodwill as an example yet again, are you tired of hearing about it yet? Should we change it to a skirt the next time? I don't know. Anyway, you sell if you sell it for $20, you give Poshmark $4. And after the cost of the shirt, you're left with $10. But if you offer free or discounted shipping, you're basically giving away most or all of that $10. Maybe then you decide to raise the selling price to $30 to help cover that free shipping and still make more than $1 or $0 off of this transaction. Poshmark will take $6 of that. You give Poshmark another $8 for the free shipping. And after you deduct the price you paid for the shirt at Goodwill, you'll be left with, once again, $10. And that's supposed to cover all of your labor. Maybe that is why very few people are making bank off of resale. Because you have to pay taxes on that $10. You have to pay for your computer, internet access, lighting, backdrops for your photos, maybe models. Oh, so much more. We're going to talk about it in a few minutes. But let's pretend that you don't have to pay for anything else out of that $10. And Uncle Sam doesn't know a thing about it. You then have to sell if you get to keep that $10, 200 items per month to make $2,000, which is still only $24,000 a year. That's before taxes and includes no benefits like health insurance, sick days, paid time off. Basically, the spoiler here is that that's not a living wage because we don't live in a world where you don't have to pay taxes, where you don't need health care, Uh, where you don't ever get sick. I I wish all of these things were true, but we can't avoid these things is the moral of the story. You can't, as a reseller, make a living sourcing from the Goodwill or many most thrift stores at this point than selling on these platforms and only charging $20 to $30 per item while also giving customers the off-demanded free shipping. It's no wonder then that the majority of resellers don't And I mean that don't, all caps, source from thrift stores. Yes, some do. I don't know how they make it work financially, to be honest. It doesn't make good financial sense. Most resellers find their inventory at the bins, which are the Goodwill outlet where items are sold by the pound. It's kind of the last stop before the landfill or the place where they're all going to get shredded up. They also source at estate sales, yard sales, rag houses, auctions, and via companies that sell by the lot. If you've decided as a reseller to skip the platforms, you can sell on your own website or via Instagram. But don't worry, there's someone else to take a cut there. It's the payment platforms. Alex uses Shopify, which makes its money two ways from her. First, there is the hosting fee that is a flat rate depending on the plan she uses. That can be $29, $79, or $299. The platform also takes a cut of each transaction, ranging from 2.4% to 2.9%, depending on the plan, along with 30 cents. That 30 cents, always showing up to join the party here. For people who sell on Instagram, Venmo takes 1.9% of each transaction, plus Guess what? Not 30 cents, 10 cents. Venmo actually seems to be the best deal here. PayPal takes 2.9% plus, of course, 30 cents per sale. 
This stuff adds up and I have worked with resellers both as a consultant and during sessions of Small Biz Big Pick, which are the business classes I teach with my friend Courtney of Sonic Wave Vintage. And I will tell you these fees, the shipping, all these other costs, it's what I call death by a thousand paper cuts because they just chip away at someone's ability to make a living. Selling on your own outside of these platforms can save you fees, but then you're responsible for hustling twice as hard to bring people to your website or your Instagram profile. It's not easy either way. And even still, sourcing your inventory at thrift stores probably won't make financial sense either. So there's just... Resellers are not taking all the good stuff out of the thrift stores, everyone. I want to be clear here. I'm sure there are some that are sourcing there and you see them. I bet that's not how they're making the bulk of their money because there's just, it just doesn't work from a financial standpoint. And here's another thing. Everything is being sold to us at a markup. As Tamara of Venus Vestiaire said, although vintage sellers are labeled as resellers, everything is resold to us. Everything is marked up at any retail store we shop at, even at the grocery store. And my friends, I will tell you, I have been working and buying for close to 20 years now. And wow, that went way faster than I thought it would. And the thing is, all retail is resale. Stuff costs one thing, but sells for another price. Ask me about the time my sister's boyfriend tried to explain that to me as if I haven't been building a whole career out of it. He literally said, you're not going to believe this, but when you go into a store, the price you pay for stuff isn't the price the store paid for it. Hmm. Go on. Tell me some more. Did I mention what I do for a living? (laughs) Okay, I didn't say that last part, but it was very awkward and I'm way too polite. I just kept being like, wow, no way. Interesting. Anyway, retailers mark stuff up, of course, to make profits for shareholders and executive bonuses, but they also have overhead expenses to cover via these sales. They need to do more than just sell it for the cost of making it because then they can't pay all the other bills, right? These are things like salaries, rent on stores, offices, warehouses, utilities, equipment, and office furniture, and store fixtures, and trucks, and on and on and on. And resellers, just like retailers, have their own expenses. In fact, now that we've uncovered the fact that all retail is resale, maybe we need a new name for it. If you have a new name idea, send it my way. You know how to find me. When you buy something from a reseller, you're covering a lot of different things that contribute to the cost of that item beyond the price the reseller paid when they sourced it. This is just how business works, right? There's the gas used on sourcing trips along with the reseller's time spent sourcing. Any laundry or mending, including the time and materials needed to do that. The time spent listing, measuring, and photographing an item. Of course, there's all those listing fees. Uh, There are the tech and apps involved in running a small business from subscriptions for photo editing, website hosting, creating social media content. There's your computer, your phone, your internet access, printer, paper, electricity. Of course, there are taxes and free shipping if it's included for the customers, which it often is. And I'm here to tell you that only three things in life are certain, death, taxes, and that shipping is never free. There's also packaging, shipping labels, trips to the post office. This is just the beginning of the list. 
Hopefully now you're starting to see why resellers are charging more than, say, the Goodwill, who, by the way, got all its products for free. And once again, resellers are providing a service of convenience, assortment, and accessibility. You can also see why no one is getting rich from resale except for the platforms. Well, other companies are getting rich too, like the shipping services, for example. I know many of you use Pirate Ship. I use Pirate Ship. How do they make money? It is not from sailing the high seas and stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. I realize I'm combining two characters at once here. No, they negotiate a bulk rate with the USPS and UPS and any other carrier that is below the standard sort of like market rate. And they get that lower price based on a promise of volume. And then they charge users a slightly higher rate that is still below the standard market rate. Then they pocket the difference. And yes, this is a business that is built upon resale, specifically online resale. I can assure you that Pirate Ship would not exist if it weren't for all of the packages of secondhand items being shipped all around the world every day. Other industries benefit from the rise of online resale too. We've got companies that make boxes and mailers, the brands that sell thermal printers and labels. There's this really cute pink one that's been haunting my Instagram feed for quite a while. If you know, you know. Um, There's lighting and backdrops and credit card companies that offer business credit cards to resellers. There are photo editing apps. I mean, there's just so much more. This is once again, just like the beginning of it. Gosh, probably like, The printer ink industry benefits from resellers. There is so much money in resale and shockingly, or maybe not at all, only the smallest part of it seems to go to the actual resellers. Let's take a moment to mention a new sponsor of Clothes Horse, North American Herb and Spice. A few weeks ago, I was sick from one of the wild viruses wreaking havoc on all of us this winter and early spring. You all know because I told you on Instagram. And while illnesses like colds and flus tend to linger with me for a really long time, turning into a sinus infection, bronchitis, or some other secondary infection that slows me down for weeks and makes it hard to make Clothes Horse, This time I made a fast recovery and I think North American herb and spices oregano P73 oil had a lot to do with that. I'm actually a regular user of herbal and natural remedies because I believe in the power of plants and I've got a lot of rad smart herbalists in my life. I'm very lucky. I've actually been a big believer in oregano oil for upper respiratory infections and other minor illnesses since a friend introduced me to it about, I don't know, 10 years ago. Fun fact, it was actually a vendor that I worked with at my first buying job. I just add two drops to a little bit of water and chug it first thing in the morning. It's also great when mixed with a hot ginger and cayenne tea. So awesome for a sore throat. I've also used it to treat minor skin infections and bug bites, which I get a lot of, especially here in Texas. And North American Urban Spice has the highest quality oregano oil I have ever used. Oregano P73 is the original, truly wild, organic oregano oil that is produced by old-fashioned, old-fashioned steam distillation. 
It is the only unprocessed full-spectrum wild oregano oil available, and it is chemical and GMO-free. North American Urban Spice is a true American success story. Founded in a basement and told by skeptics that it could not be done, Judy K. Gray defied the odds and built a renowned and trusted brand. She believed that there had to be a better way to heal the world and that the answer lay in finding the finest ingredients especially from the wild, and formulating them into unique products. Judy was the first to recognize the unique healing powers of P73 oregano oil and create formulations that countless consumers have used over the last 30 years. If you're interested in trying oregano P73 or any of North American Herb and Spice's other products, Go check out NorthAmericanHerbAndSpice.com. They offer a wide variety of high-quality products made from ingredients sustainably sourced from around the world. I'll definitely be adding their Oregasin throat spray to my next order. And guess what? I have a special offer just for Clothes Horse listeners. Get 25% off your order with the promo code CLOTHESHORSE25. That's CLOTHESHORSE25, and I'll share that in the show notes. Okay, well, are you ready to get back into my conversation with Alex? We still have so much to cover, so let's go. Moving on to myth number three. This is another one. Oof. This is a big one. This one really speaks to what it is to be human, I think. Resellers are taking all the good stuff. Woof. Took it all. Um, okay. Well, I know you have a lot of thoughts here, yes. but I, you know, I was, I wanted to see, are thrift stores running out of stuff? Like, what's their official position here? I mean, I can tell you anecdotally that they're not, but I was like, are they? Are they feeling the pinch? Because, you know, they were feeling a little bit of a pinch in 1978, right? According to a 2022 Wall Street Journal article, by the way, this is probably the first and only time I will ever cite the Wall Street Journal here on Clothes Horse, but this was a particularly good piece, I actually thought, about the thrift industry right now. It was called Even Thrift Stores Aren't Immune from Rising Prices, which actually does touch a little bit on the next myth we're going to bust. Clothing makes up 48% of Goodwill sales every year. Um, and you're probably wondering, oh, is like that much higher than usual because secondhand shopping is so popular right now? Guess what? It's always been 48% of Goodwill sales. Yeah. People aren't buying more clothes from the Goodwill mm-hmm. than they were before. However, what has changed is that thrift stores are looking to make more money off of the more valuable items they receive via eBay, the Salvation Army, and many other thrifts I have shopped have their own eBay Mm -hmm. uh, auctions or their own websites, which the Goodwill has and is making massive money off of. Greg Tuck is the Assistant National Community Relations and Development Secretary, what a title, at the Salvation Army here in the United States. He told the Wall Street Journal, our staff are trained as much as we can to identify the high value things and then we will sell them for high value. According to Goodwill's own website, in 2021, shopgoodwill.com surpassed $1 billion in sales. Half of those sales have happened in just the last four years, even though the site had been around since the early aughts, because they have gotten so good 
at channeling the high-value product out of all of their smaller stores to a central location where they shoot it and put it online. Yeah, it's so interesting because, you know, you see this. Resellers are taking all the good stuff. Resellers are taking all the cute stuff. And that argument is kind of right in the sense that the resellers are these corporations themselves. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, yeah, you know what? You're right. There is this mysterious entity that's swooping into the back of the Goodwill and snatching up everything good before it hits the floor. It's Goodwill itself. It's not yeah. like some random individual coming into the store. It is the corporation asking their employees to filter out the items that are designer, are like valuable and rare and put those things on their own website so that they can increase their profits. So when a lot of Mm -hmm. people are like, oh, I used to find, you know, amazing designer goods and all these types of things at the Goodwill and I don't see that stuff anymore. That's because a lot of that stuff isn't ever making it onto the floor. A reseller isn't Mm -hmm. getting to it before you. Goodwill is getting to it before you. And they're putting it on their website and they're auctioning it and they're forcing us to fight over this item so that they can make more off of it. Oh, totally. I talked to a few different people who did not want to be named on the episode who worked for the Goodwill in in the, within the past few mm-hmm. years as the Goodwill, shopgoodwill.com was like really picking up momentum. Yeah. And they told me that they actually had daily quotas I that. for the amount of product they were supposed to pull mm-hmm. and to send off to the website. And I mean, obviously you can't control what you're going to get each day, but if they were not meeting those quotas, they would face disciplinary action, more supervision, um, definitely everything that they pulled to go out on the floor, like before it could go out on the floor, had to be inspected by a supervisor to make sure they hadn't missed anything of higher value that could be sent to shopgoodwill.com. Interesting. And honestly, like, I don't blame the people in those positions for not wanting to publicly come out and say that that was their job. Um, I don't blame them for having that job at all. That's not their responsibility to, you know, not do that. It's just interesting that we've chosen to go after resellers instead of being mad at Goodwill for... I know. <laughs> yeah. And another thing also that I think people, a lot of people either don't think about or are unaware of is that there are also a lot of major corporations and retailers outside of the thrift space that have now mm-hmm. entered resale. And so um, I know Levi's is a big one. And um, I know that Urban Outfitters also has their like vintage secondhand line. And they hire people specifically to go out and source. And they collect vintage product for these companies to sell. And it's interesting in the case of Levi's because Levi made the product, sold the product. They're now going back out so they can make more money off of their same product again. And these buyers have like way bigger, you know, bank accounts and access to resources than the average reseller does. Like, when I go out and buy, I don't have a corporate card. I don't get to just swipe up as much stuff as possible and just, you know, like, money doesn't matter. I can spend as much as I want. Like, that is not the case for the average reseller. But people working it for these corporations to source secondhand do typically have, like, enormous budgets to do that. So they can go into a rag house or a thrift store and buy every single pair of Levi's in the store. Yeah. And it also, you know, you touched on Urban Outfitters and there are a few other retailers who kind of have permanent secondhand or vintage sections in their stores or selling a lot of reworked stuff, 
in the case of Urban Outfitters, it's all of those things. They are literally buying that stuff by the pallet. If you want to talk about someone taking all the good stuff, let's talk about companies buying entire pallets of desirable product for pennies, pennies on the dollar, and then reselling it to you basically at the same price of a brand new product or higher. And then, you know, I think that just brings us back to our point of while I do disagree with a lot of the like morals behind these corporations that do this stuff, even if they are buying up pallets and pallets and pallets, there is still too much stuff. There is still Um, an endless supply of stuff. Yes. Which brings me to another great quote from that uh, Wall Street Journal article, which I hope to never, ever again (laughs) attribute a great quote to the Wall Street Journal. But this was a I mean, this was great. This surge of flip happy prospectors has ignited fears, particularly on Gen Z's favorite social media platform, TikTok, Mm -hmm. that thrift stores may get cleaned out of their inventory, leaving frugal shoppers with nowhere to shop. Companies that operate thrift stores dismissed these concerns. I don't think we'll ever be in a place where we don't have stuff, said Mr. Tuck. That was the guy from the Salvation Army. He noted that the Salvation Army received $68 million worth of donations just during last year's Christmas season. He said, part of our culture in America is that we are consumers and we are replacers. And we just hope that the public always sees us as a viable place to make those kinds of donations. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. There's there's no shortage of stuff. Everybody I've talked to, even bef- well before this episode was a glimmer in our eyes, who has worked in the thrift store industry, has told me that only a small percentage of the stuff that a store receives on any given day ever makes it out onto the floor. And an even smaller part of that actually goes home with someone because there's so much product coming in that they have to constantly clear out what's on the floor to make room for the new stuff that came in. There is no shortage. There really is not. There really is not. So we have some more messages from different people. Um, One is from Amy. Her business is called I Need More Vintage. She said, if we're running out of secondhand clothes, how come there are no empty thrift stores? The thrift stores are packed all the time. Think about the fact that Goodwill has outlet stores. They have so much stuff that won't fit into or can't be sold in their stores that there is an off-price store to get rid of donations. Bonkers. I shop there and you can tell that there are bags and bags of stuff that never even got sorted because they are in closed bags, knotted up like they just got donated. And that is that is the fact. Yep. As I have been to the bins enough times to also recognize that some of the stuff, no one ever even looked at it. It's just too much. And I want to remind you that a lot of the larger thrift store organizations and chains are actually selling off their excess because there's just too much. We're talking like someone in my life who worked at a small town Goodwill, a couple huge trailers, like tractor trailers of product shipping out of their store every week. Oh, yeah, I believe that. It's it's wild. So Maria Eisen has worked in thrift stores for 14 years. She's also now a reseller. She said, The first thrift store I worked for, I started in the early 2000s, and during the nine years that I worked there, I saw the good, the bad, and the ugly of this industry. We were a self-contained nonprofit, but the stores expanded too fast, and the warehouse had a hard time keeping up. 
When people say there's no good stuff in there, I'll tell you it's 80% of the time because the donations aren't being sorted well. Either there's not enough staff or the sorters aren't giving guidance as to what to prioritize or they focus on corporate donations of new goods. There's a disconnect with the people who run thrifts, upper management, because they want something more scalable and predictable than is realistic. They want to project numbers and growth and create sales goals, and that's really hard on merchandise that can't be predetermined. So they rag out bags and bags of regular donations in favor of like a Zara donation, where they can feel like its outcome is more predictable, except it's not what the customers want. Prices start to rise because aside from the fact in New York City, at least the commercial rents are even more out of control than residential, the store needs to meet some sales goal upper management gave them and thinks that maybe they can price gouge their way to it. None of this has anything to do with resellers. The store I worked for had heavy reseller business, more so in antiques and jewelry, and I can say we still often had plenty of amazing stuff coming in for everyone until decisions made by the board hobbled our ability to do so. Resellers aren't buying up all the good stuff. These days, not much good stuff even reaches the store. There is also the reality that the percentage of really cheap, crappy clothes getting donated has increased exponentially. Back in 2005, when I started at this place, the cheap clothes were way nicer than 80% of the clothing is now. And when I was a teen in the 90s, the quality was even better. The race to the bottom in the fast fashion industry is hurting thrifting, too. And I was just like, slow clap, because this is the reality. Like, I remember the first time I saw something Shein at the thrift store, and I was like, whoa. I've heard about Shein and now I go thrifting and it's like 25% of the stuff on the racks. Everything I pick up is Shein or LuLaRoe, I swear. Oh my God, the LuLaRoe, it just keeps coming. Yeah. But I mean, I think so this, everything she said is so true and this is such a good segue into something that I wanted to talk about that ties into that. So, you know, the reason that donations are declining in quality is because what people are buying new is declining Mm -hmm. in quality. And if you think about the things that you or the people that you know donate, a majority of those items were probably purchased within the last like five to 10 years or maybe less, right? So think about what has happened to the state of the fashion industry and the quality of clothing in the last five or 10 years. And then start going back five, 10 years. Every time you go back, you see that the quality of clothing is better. So if you started thrifting in the 2010s, you were seeing a lot of items from like the very beginning of fast fashion. If you started thrifting in the early 2000s or the 90s, you were looking at clothing from before fast fashion really existed in the way that it does today. And then not to mention that people were just consuming way less than they are now. So people were Mm -hmm. keeping clothes that they had for a lot longer. In the past, people were way more likely to mend their clothing. They were more likely to hand them down to family or community members. Um, It was a lot harder to replace clothing. It was much more expensive than it is now. Nowadays, like if a button falls off your shirt, plenty of people will just get rid of the shirt because A, Mm -hmm. they don't know how to sew and B, like it's honestly probably cheaper. Like it's literally easier and faster to go to H&M and (sighs) buy a new top for $10 than it is to sit down and like watch a YouTube video on how to sew a button on, go buy a needle and thread, go buy a new button. People are like, I don't want to do all that. So if you think about the way that our relationship with clothing has changed also, people are keeping things for such a shorter amount of time. So if you think back down the line, like there's a good chance that a lot of the things that people were donating were 
in the past more like 10, 20, or even 30 years old because people were keeping mm-hmm. things for longer. So, you know, you could go into the thrift store and find things from the 70s when the 70s was 20 or 30 years ago. Now, like the 70s was 50 years ago. So yeah. the expectation to be just waltzing into the thrift and finding tons of that, like that, it, it's been quite a long time. So, like, the chance of people having held on to that and then be just, like, bringing it in to donate is just smaller than it ever has been. That's 100% true. And in many cases, if someone was like, oh, wow, I do have a bunch of 70s stuff that I don't want anymore, at this point, they would probably sell it somewhere else. They would take it to a vintage store who buys from the public. They might try to sell it themselves online or they would give it to someone they know to resell it. They're not... It kind of takes me back to what we were talking about in the late 70s where people were selling stuff themselves rather than donating Mm -hmm. it because they needed the money. Yeah, absolutely. And just, you know, there's way more accessibility now. People have options besides just dropping stuff off the thrift store. And I feel like this is just something that we, a lot of people don't think about and we haven't thought about the ways in which the industry has changed so much and how our buying habits and how the habits of how the stores operate and the kind of product they're making have it, it it's all you know it goes downstream and that just really affects the quality of what we're seeing at the thrift stores yes yes i once again a couple years ago saw one shein thing at the store and was like oh that's so weird now there's so much and shein hasn't been around for that long which just shows how fast people are cycling through these clothes i mean i want to say the first time that I'd ever seen something Shein at the thrift store because like you said I remember it being kind of like shocking being like oh wow this because you I knew it was so new Mm -hmm. and I want to say that was probably like within the last five years and then like you and I were just saying the amount that it's now proliferated what's in the thrift store like that's alarming that is a very large amount of stuff to be going in and like flooding the racks within such a short amount of time. What we see in the thrift store is always going to be a function of the climate that we live in at that point. And this is where we are right now. I remember 10 years ago, it felt like anytime I saw something cute at the thrift store that like had a vintage-y like pre-70s vibe, I would look at the tag and it would be from Old Navy. And I would be kind of like, oh, Old Navy, why do you do this to me? (laughs) Now I go thrifting and I see stuff that has like a vintage vibe you know, beyond earlier than the 70s. And it's always Shein, always, every time. And it's so crappy. Mm-hmm. And I have seen so much Shein stuff at the thrift store that still has tags on it. Yeah, so a lot of it it's has gross. Never been it's worn. really gross. Yeah. It's, it's same for the LuLaRoe. Yes. LuLaRoe, I feel like the founders of LuLaRoe need to be like on trial for like environmental crimes at this point. I mean, someone should be held <laughs> responsible. And I really yeah. don't think that the people who are conned into participating in the MLM are the ones that should be to blame there. No, definitely not. And I just cannot believe, doesn't matter where in the country I am, there is so much LuLaRoe in every section of the thrift store. It's very disturbing. Dresses, pajamas, leggings, t-shirts, kids, you name it. It's, it's horrible. Okay, well, Amanda is a former employee of a chain of secondhand clothing stores. And she said... We used to see hundreds of storage bins, trash bags, cardboard boxes of shoes, clothes, accessories every week. I'm talking vintage, 
brand name, things you've only seen in ads, to the point where even if something was top brand, it was kind of like, we can't keep it because the store is full and so is the 200-foot storage unit. This always struck me as someone who was working double shifts and couldn't afford a McDonald's meal. I was just, I just kept thinking this stuff has such a high value and we're saying, no, will it end up in the trash? I think that's another point is there's, there's just so much stuff circulating out there right now. Yeah, I mean, in general, the, the sheer quantity of donations now is definitely a major, major issue. And like two of the people that you've read from have said like that definitely plays a huge role in the dec- declining quality of what we're seeing at the stores. Um, you know, the average consumer is purchasing over 70 new items per year and mm-hmm. like I don't know about you guys, but I don't have like a bottomless closet. Like most of us can't actually keep or wear that much clothing. You know, 60 items a year, that's like, that's ridiculous. And so if you, if you continue to buy that way, like it's more stuff than anyone can ever manage, which means that we're donating and getting rid of more stuff than ever. And like someone else mentioned, like these thrift stores are just trying their best to keep up and sort through stuff. And the reality is, is that a lot of things that are vintage, a lot of things that people would find desirable are actually more likely to be damaged. And they're also more likely to have a brand name that isn't going to be recognizable to a lot of consumers or to a lot of employees at thrift stores. Um, I know that a lot of my favorite vintage brands are not going to be brands that like the average person has ever heard of before. So I would be super excited to find it. But someone who works at a thrift store that doesn't have specialty knowledge in vintage apparel they're going to see this label they're not going to know what it is and this you know if it has a stain if any elements broke it if buttons are missing there's a good chance that they're just not going to put it on the floor you know i think you just touched on something that is really important too because another one of the sort i mean i'm going to be honest this is a bad faith argument that i see being thrown out there on social media as like as part of like anti reseller logic is that resellers are only leaving behind all the stained damaged messed up stuff and i was like hmm because everybody i talk to who works in the thrift industry has told me that they receive such high volume of stuff that they are only allowed to put things on the floor that are in flawless condition because they there's such limited space that they don't the you know the management of these thrift stores do not want to waste space on things that are not perfect. And so even if something has a little chip or a snag or a tiny stain, it's going to get pulled and sent off to the rag house. Now, at that point, it might be sold off to another thrift store, sure. Um, you know, that stuff is graded. And definitely, Dustin and I are pretty convinced that here in Texas, the, the chain of Texas thrift stores is buying, like, the B or C-rated uh, vintage mm-hmm. palettes because we will see vintage in the vintage section. That You'll be like, oh, my God, this is so cool. But it, it's like, can we get the 95 stains out right, of it? Right, right. You know, but that's very unusual. You would never see that at a Goodwill. Yeah, and honestly, like when, like when I do see stuff that's damaged, that you know, a lot of that stuff does manage to like sneak by. That's often the stuff that I go for as someone who has the expertise <laughs> to deal with it. Like, right, you know, right. I am very much capable of cleaning something, of mending something, or of altering something in a way that I know can preserve a garment in a way that a lot of other shoppers either like can't or are not willing to do. 
And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's just so interesting because, like, again, this new fast fashion stuff, like the Shein and the Zara, like, that stuff is way more likely to not be damaged and to be in, like, new condition because, A, some most of it's just not worn. Like, people buy it, they try mm-hmm. it on, it looks horrible, and they're like, whatever, this was $4. I'm just going to get rid of it. I don't care. Um, and so that stuff is more likely to be, quote, unquote, like, in good condition. And so that's what we end up seeing. Yeah. Which is such a shame because that's not actually, like, what people want. I mean, that's the rub of it all, right? People don't want the Shein and the other fast fashion stuff. But yet, at the same time, people are buying so much of it that that's the majority of what you see in the thrift store. Yeah, and they're also donating so much of it. I know, I know. So it's sort of like people don't want it secondhand because clothing has such little value to people in the first place. And then when it's secondhand, it's like loses the majority of its value. You know, there's always that thing like if you buy a car the moment you drive off the lot, it loses half its value. For clothing, it's even bigger, I would say, that decline in value. And so Shein and Zara and other fast fashion brands that people thought were totally fine to buy brand new, they won't buy secondhand. Yeah. Uh, And I think that speaks to like sort of an illness that we have as a society that we're buying the stuff that we don't respect or care for in the first place. Right. We have such little value for it that we won't buy it secondhand. I actually try to, when I'm thrifting, uh, sort of practice like label blindness, as I call it. Like I don't let myself look at the label. Mm -hmm. And I just decide like, is this something that I would wear? Does it fit me? And then I might like look at the the fabric content Mm -hmm. label. And then when I've made my decision, I'm like, what is the label in here? Right. You know? And it inevitably, I don't know why, it's it always ends up being Chico's. I don't know why. But, <laughs> you know, like, I, I definitely think that, you know, we have to use this stuff. And I do see people reselling Shein and Zara online. I see people reselling Zara for pretty wild prices, actually, sometimes on Poshmark. I don't understand the strategy. But I think this idea that resellers are storming the thrift store grabbing everything and just leaving racks of stained shredded clothing behind it it's just it's just not true it's very weird and also the thing is is that the as the low quality product in these stores increases there is a higher threshold of skill and knowledge and just like time and labor required in order to find high quality and vintage items And it's so Mm -hmm. interesting because I feel like a lot of times in, you know, when I see people attacking resellers online, someone will be showing off a pair of like 70s trousers, right? And they're like, I found these trousers, I'm going to be reselling them. And you have people in the comments that are very upset because they're saying like, well, you should have just left those for someone who is going to keep them for themselves instead of reselling. And the thing is, is it requires a trained eye to look at 500 pairs of pants from Shein Find the ones that are vintage, recognize their potential on the rack, and accurately identify them as being from the 70s, which is not something that everyone can do. And when someone is showing off this item online, it's often being modeled on a body. It's styled in an outfit. Um, You know, the person who found it is providing you with information that, you know, they wouldn't have found in the thrift store. They're able to tell you the age of the garment, the name of the style. They could maybe tell you the history of the brand. And so you have all of these additional elements that are making this item seem so appealing in a way that it wouldn't be appealing to you if you had seen it in the thrift store. And then 
You also have confirmation bias, like someone having already purchased this item signals to other people that it's desirable. And if it's just like drooping Mm -hmm. on a rack, you probably wouldn't feel that same way. And so it's just so interesting because I feel like people are given all of this information and context and you have someone who's super excited about something and people are like, wow, I want that. But if you took all of that away, if you took all of the information and all of the context away from that piece, like the item wouldn't look good to you. And that's not to say that people can't find great things, but like most of the people that are so angry and saying, why would you buy that to resell? Why wouldn't you just leave that? Like, you know, it does, it's not going to have all of that appeal when it's just in the thrift store. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think a lot in conversations like this about a thrift store that Dustin and I like to go to in San Antonio, I'm going to be honest and say that I rarely thrift clothing at this point because I don't need any. Mm Um, sometimes I, I'm always in the hunt for nightgowns. Um, I generally go thrifting for more like house stuff and books for, and like art for clothes horse stuff. Um, but I still look at every single aisle, you know, like I just like to see what's out there and get a feel for it and see what people are doing. And that store is massive. It used to be a Lowe's home improvement store. So it's huge. And it is just like, imagine if you went into like a Lowe's or Home Depot and there were it was completely emptied of all the construction stuff. So we're talking like this huge space. And there were rows of of clothing on racks that went from the front of the store all the way to the back wall. Mm-hmm. Think about how much clothing that yeah. is and just multiply that by like 20 aisles. I mean, it is just packed. And I'm going to tell you that if you found a pair of awesome 70s jeans in there, it is like a miracle. So the fact that like, someone found them means it's going to be saved from going to the landfill probably like yes odds are high it was going to end up there because to go through all those genes find them and also be someone who recognized them and liked them and it was what they wanted is like nothing short of a miracle because there's so much to look at I'm sorry, but the majority of thrift store shoppers are not looking for 70s jeans. Yeah. Or if they are, they might not be their size. Well, and that's the thing because it's so interesting. Like people say, you know, you should be leaving. You should have left those behind for someone who really wanted them or really needed them and could buy them at the thrift store price, right? So you're basically raising two scenarios here. So in the commenter, the angry anti-reseller comment, the scenario is that this reseller says, you know what? I'm not going to resell these. I'm going to leave them behind, right? And, like, one Mm -hmm. of the um, essays that you shared earlier pointed out, like, that relies on a hope that someone who is the exact size that wants pants and that exact style is going to look through all of those items and find them. And like you said, not only are a lot of these thrift stores just absolutely enormous and have so much inventory, but they generally aren't really sorted or organized that well. Like, I have gone into thrift stores where it is a fucking mess. There is stuff on the floor, like there's hangers everywhere, mm-hmm. stuff's thrown over, things are randomly in piles, things aren't in the racks of where they're supposed to be. So you have to hope that someone's going to find those in the store out of the tens of thousands of other pieces. And then in a lot of the cases, the window that a person has for finding something is only like a few days, maybe weeks, probably not months because thrift stores are cycling out products if they don't sell within a certain time so frame. fast yeah so like yeah you're you're leaving something behind right like people are 
trying to say that the moral thing to do is to leave them. So you're going to leave them. You're going to hope that someone comes along at exactly the right time within exactly the right time window, finds those exact pants, and they're their size, and they're their style, and they want to buy them. And if that doesn't happen, then now what? Those pants are going to be – there's a good chance those pants are going to go to a landfill. Yeah. And Yeah, or they're going to get bundled up, shipped off to a textile recycler, where they will be pulled and sold to a vintage dealer. Right. <laughs> and resold exactly. anyway. In which case, like, <laughs> the outcome is the same. And then, you yeah. know, so – Then you have the other scenario in which the reseller just purchases the pants because the pants are cool. In this situation, there is now a very, very good chance that that one person who is that exact size and wants that exact style is going to find those pants. And like, will they have to spend more money on it to cover the labor that the reseller did? Sure. But I personally feel that the cost of that labor is worth saving something that is probably irreplaceable like a lot of these vintage items that are floating around like there are a limited number of those and so when you leave something Mm -hmm. behind and say i hope that someone else finds that like if no one does find it that might be it that might be the last pair of blue flares in a size medium from that brand and they just are gone forever now and now no one gets to have them versus a reseller saving them, selling them to someone, not only does that one person that bought them get to have them, treasure them, cherish them, but now those could live a life for who knows how long. If that person outgrows them, doesn't want them anymore, they could resell them. And so now you're keeping these in this cycle and you're saving something that like otherwise, like that's it. They don't exist anymore. I just don't think that risk is worth it. I don't think so either. I also just want to say, and I mean, I already know that you know this, Alex, but some listeners may not. When you go to a store, a thrift store, and there's a t- colored tag on sale, um, the, the colored tag system is how thrift stores manage the age of their inventory. So they know that the blue tags came in four weeks ago, and that's why they're 50% off, because next week, they're either going to go to 75% off or someone's going to go through every rack pull everything with a blue tag, they're going to bail it up, and they're going to send it off somewhere else. And I think that's really important to tell everybody. For if, if you didn't know, that's why the tags work that way. And that is because it is very important that product is cycling in and out of the thrift store constantly because they receive so much stuff. So uh, I think that's a really good call. Like people should, like, uh, anyway, I'm getting by. Okay. <laughs> We have another great message from Christine, uh, Lady Hog Vintage, who is a friend of mine and has been selling vintage her entire adult life. Definitely an expert in this space. Christine is like an internet mutual of mine who is super cool and so supportive. Um, Yeah, she's awesome. I just had dinner with her last night because she was in Portland. I'm not in Portland. Where am I? I'm in Austin. (laughs) She was in Austin last night. We had a really great time. She was passing through. She said... You know, where do you find your stuff? No gatekeeping here. Thrift stores, auctions, estate sales, flea markets, free piles, garage sales, Goodwill outlets, rag houses, and just knowing people that need help clearing a lifetime of possessions. People sometimes hit a point where liquidation is a necessity, and many resellers buy directly from those people and allocate the wares among various stores and local markets. To those who say the resellers pick all the good stuff, 
look harder. It's there, I assure you. Thrift stores are only widely known, but far from the only way to find secondhand clothes. In smaller communities, look at yard sales, rummage sales, rural antique malls. I agree with her there. Talk to people who are downsizing. Put an ad in the local paper. The clothes are there, and if they're, get them, or they will be thrown away. A plea to other resellers, though, please give back. Socks, beanies, long johns, sleeping bags, army surplus are easily sourced, especially at the Goodwill outlets. These things are great for direct action donation. Handing a military surplus pair of socks to an unhoused human outside asking for help truly helps. I've never seen someone be angry about free socks when they're out in the elements. Let's all wallow in the muck of late-stage capitalism together. Keep it circular and dispel the myths that individuals are the problem when we're all just doing the best in the world we were born into. Love that. Really good, right? And I do, I always cite Christine to other reseller friends I make as like, I love that she specifically sources inventory to give back. Yeah, that's amazing. To people in the community. Yeah, I love that. I think I would love to see that happening in every city. Although, once again, should the thrift stores be doing this? Yeah, <laughs> they're not. Yep. Tell them they need to, right? Okay. Then we have, t- uh, t- this is, I'm sorry, I'm going to blow this. It's either Tamara or Tamara. Uh, so I, there's a 50-50 chance there. <laughs> Um, she sells as Venus Vestier. She said, I don't think the appreciation for sustainability, secondhand fashion, and vintage would be what it is today without resellers. Thrifting has always been a thing, but was seen as for poor people before resellers made it cool. The pricing we have shows we know the true value of these pieces and have brought value back into secondhand pieces. We're so different from thrift stores because we put the knowledge, research, repair, cleaning into it. It's easy for people to overlook that. Usually we are trying to find clothes before it ends up in thrift or at rag houses where all the clothes from thrift stores are dumped. I went to Chile recently where mountains of clothes from North America are dumped in their northern deserts. This idea of, oh, we're taking clothes away from people, thrifting has been a thing for a long time. So has reselling it. That's just how thrifting works. If someone finds it first, it's theirs, and that's totally fair. There's so much textile in this world, I don't think people can truly visually fathom. In North America, we're just as good as hiding it and shipping it off to poorer places. The abundance of clothes is beyond comprehension. When you get down to brass tacks, there's just too much clothing. We're not running out. We don't even need to make any more new clothing. Which brings me back to that argument. If you don't want people buying secondhand clothing to resell or buying secondhand clothing if they are have whatever too much money whatever that means then what you're saying is you want them to buy more new right. stuff that the world doesn't need and that's just a huge problem huge problem and i know yeah. that you know plenty of people hear these arguments and they're still saying okay but like the you know the good stuff there's still like all the stuff that's being dumped the stuff that's being thrown away like a majority of it is fast fashion it's low quality it's stuff that people don't want and i find it so interesting because this concept of what's good is so subjective Yes. Um, You know, everyone has a different taste level. There are things that people like and don't like. And that's outside of like brand or even fiber. Like there are plenty of synthetic fibers that I actually prefer and enjoy wearing, Um, you know, even though they're quote unquote like low quality or cheap. 
Um, I am very sensitive to a lot of animal fibers. Me too. Yeah, I personally, I can't wear wool, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, even though I love it. Um, So I, you know, sure, I have like cotton sweaters, but I also have a lot of acrylic sweaters that I really love, even though they're that's seen as like a low quality synthetic fiber. Mm -hmm. And in terms of taste too, it's so funny because I will see, seen so many videos online of people that are so thrilled to share their like best thrift haul ever. And they'll have this huge pile of things they're sharing and I am not interested in any of it. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're showing, they said, I found 30 things at the thrift store today and I had the best day ever. This is my new dream wardrobe and I wouldn't have picked up any of those things I wouldn't have picked them up for me. I wouldn't have picked them up to resell in my shop. Um, And those videos make me really happy Mm -hmm. because I just think like five different people, 10 different people, 50 different people could have their best day ever in the exact same store at the same time. And that could happen every single day for like the rest of eternity. We could all go into the same store and be so excited about what we find because we're not looking for the same stuff. Like, we all have different tastes. We all have different bodies. We all have different preferences. And it's just so hard to say, oh, resellers are taking all the good stuff. Because I'm like, what is the good stuff? Well, it's it's no- like you said, it's subjective, right? Yeah. There are things that people really, really love that I have absolutely no interest in. And that's great. Like, I think that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Once again, listen, sometimes you go thrifting and you don't find anything. And that's just how it goes. And it sucks. And you're like, oh, this was going to be like my big fun thing I was going to do today or I really needed this thing, right? And you don't find it. And it is easy to leave and go home and say like, that's because everybody got all the good stuff before me. But that's just how it is yeah. to shop secondhand. And you know what? I love that because it actually slows down the process of consumption so that you know for sure what you want when you find it. And I think it's so much easier when you're in a more traditional resale space to feel like I went shopping so I need to buy something. And you can kind of find something that you sort of convince yourself you want so that you don't leave empty handed. It's way easier to do that in like a regular store than it is at a thrift store. Yeah, it is. To just justify a purchase so that like at least I bought something, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I... I'm sure you feel the same way too. Like if I'm going to go thrifting, I have to be like in the mood for the Mm -hmm. hunt or I'm not going to have a good time and I'm just going to end up going home because you really need to look. Yeah, absolutely. It's a far less passive form of shopping. Um, And the other thing that comes with it is like you just don't know what you're going to find, right? Or if you'll find what you needed. And I know plenty of people who are, at least until recently, were turned off of secondhand shopping because in their mind, the only place you could go is the thrift store. Who knows what's going to be there? It's going to take a million years. You have to look at everything, blah, blah, blah. I get it. And they're like so grateful that these secondhand platforms exist now because they can participate in secondhand style. Uh, They don't have to buy new stuff. And they also don't have to go out and spend all that time and frustration or, you know, I have a few friends who just are like, I hate being out in public, (laughs) you know, and now I can participate too. So I, yeah, there's plenty of stuff out there, everyone, I promise. If you're mad about the stuff you're seeing at the thrift store, uh, maybe talk to the people in your life who are buying a whole bunch of Shein 
Yes. That's the the real problem, right? The actual issue, yes, is where is this low-quality clothing coming from in the first place? Yeah. Um, And not just the buyers, but also the brands themselves. Yeah. You know, we are all like, you know, people are spending all this time and energy yelling at the people who are basically picking through what's left instead of fighting where this bad firsthand clothing is coming from. And this also ties into a lack of inclusivity, which I see quite often brought up in this conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not plus size, so, you know, I don't want to speak for anyone. I genuinely just can't imagine how sad and frustrating the lack of choices must be for plus size shoppers. But the reality is, is that there isn't as much nice plus size clothing at the thrift stores because there isn't as much nice plus size clothing being made in the first place. Period. Yeah. Like the the issue here is that companies are fat phobic. Our society is fat phobic. Brands are not manufacturing for size inclusion in new clothing. I would be willing to bet that when we look at the averages of pieces bought per year, that those numbers are brought driven up by straight size shoppers oh yeah because i don't think that plus size people have enough options out there to be buying 60 plus pieces a year Mm-mm. and i think for a lot of plus size people that do fall into overconsumption, a big part of that is probably because the things that they're buying don't work for them because plus size clothing is very well known to have bad online representation it's mm-hmm. known to be poorly graded it's known to be ill-fitting And so, you know, that makes it so much more difficult to buy clothes that fit you, that you like, which then forces you to buy more clothing. And so it's so, it's like more than fair for people to be upset that someone else came in and they bought the few nice plus size items in the store, whether that be for resale or for personal use. But the issue here is the fact that there are only a few nice plus size items in the store in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Like that's the bigger issue at hand here. It is absolutely. And it's, I mean, it's so unfortunate and for so many reasons that the only retailers who have really decided to try to be size inclusive on any level are the ultra fast fashion brands. So like, yeah, you know, you're, you're Shein, you're mm-hmm. Forever 21, Fashion Nova, these places. Thing is, they're not doing a good job addressing anyone. Everybody I talk to who has tried the, their extended sizing clothing is like, oh my God, it is two sizes too small or it fits so weird and it's totally inconsistent and I buy a lot of stuff that I can't wear or I return or what have you. And so they're not doing a great job by them either. And so what I'm saying is like, rather than being angry at people reselling secondhand, maybe be angry that these companies are making billions selling us clothing that is such crap that we have to buy new clothing right away again. And the whole thing is made out of exploitation of humans and our planet's resources. Be upset about that. That is such a larger thing. I mean, something that frustrates me constantly is like, why do we turn on one another in, in times like this rather than, you know, pulling together and focusing on the really large problems at hand? Definitely. And I think that there are plenty of straight sized people out there who don't realize how big of an issue this is. Um, I think that that's something that a lot of people should be advocating for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if like, f- like we were saying earlier, like I don't like a lot of the new options that are available right now. And I have infinitely more new options than people that are 
in plus size bodies do. Mm -hmm. So I just can't imagine how difficult it must be. And I feel like we all need to be advocating for there to be more inclusivity in new clothing production, that there needs to be better grading for plus size clothing, and that there should also just be better representation. Um, You know, brands should be showcasing clothing on models of all sizes that actually fit them. Because I know that's another big issue, too, is Mm -hmm. that brands will, you know, squeeze models into things that aren't their size. Mm -hmm. And then say that they sell up to a certain size, which they definitely don't. And yeah, those issues are just things that, again, they trickle down. What we are looking at in the thrift store is what people are buying, which is what is being produced. And the main issue is the stuff that's being produced in the first place. Yeah, that's not good stuff. It's It's bad stuff. It's not good for anyone. Anyone. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer, but Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. 
check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at highenergyvintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single-stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. Okay, so the next myth, and this is another, this is a classic one, resellers are responsible for rising prices at thrift stores. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to start this by saying that I have, like, you know, now I've been thrifting for decades. Um, I have noticed some prices increasing, but specifically if I were going to summarize the way in which I've noticed the price is increasing is thrift stores knowing the value of these items. I have also seen them go up the most at like the most problematic for-profit stores. Um, um 100%. Savers is a great example. Like Savers is I was at a Savers last year and they were selling like Okay, you know how there's nice Tupperware and not nice Tupperware? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's like the really low quality, like glad Tupperware that you can buy at the grocery store. It's yeah. very very cheap. Mm-hmm. They were selling used Glad Tupperware for like, I want to say it was like four dollars. 
Oh my God. It was used. It was like crusty. Yeah. I mean, that's a great example. Even like I I usually will buy jars if I find them, like mm-hmm. fall jars. And they have reached a point at Savers and some Goodwills where they're more expensive than buying brand new ones. And I'm like, guys, come on. I'm not going to pay $2 for one jar when I could go get like a six pack for six bucks. Like you guys are, this is ridiculous. And it would have the lids, you know. Mm -hmm. But I've also noticed like we were at a Savers a couple months ago and I found this Levi's jacket and it was $30. And I was like, wow, I mean, it's worth $30. Yes. But, I mean, this is them, like, saying, like, we know we can sell this for $30. If they end up selling it for $30 is another question. Um, But I have noticed that. And also, one time and one time only, I went to a Goodwill boutique with my— I don't know if you've ever gone to one of these, Alex. I went to a Goodwill boutique in Portland with my stepmother because we were like, what is this? Like, oh, it must just be, like, a smaller Goodwill, like, for in the city or something. There was a rack in the door of uh, free people clothing. Now, this is all clothing that had been donated to them. And I'm going to tell you, everything on that rack that was free people, that was secondhand, was more expensive than buying it right then on their website, brand new, on the free people website. Like, I was looking stuff up and being like, what the heck is going on here? Like, why are they selling it for even more, right? So, I, I mean, I definitely have seen prices go up, but I haven't also seen all prices going up. And it also just depends where you're shopping. That yes. said, there are organic reasons why thrift store prices have gone up as well, because, like, everything has gotten more expensive, right? Yeah, absolutely. For example, rent. Thrift yep. stores, for the most part, do not own their spaces. And, you know, yes, there are exceptions. And in the rural areas and small towns and independent thrift stores, yeah, they might own their space. Supplies, mm-hmm. whether it's cash register tapes, staplers, credit card machines, uh, probably they have to get subscription software for their cash registers at this point. Bags. Hangers and tags. Yeah, exactly. All of that stuff has gone up in price substantially. Yes. But the thing that is, there are two things that are really driving up costs uh, organically in the thrift realm. And one is logistics. So the largest thrift store chains, like I said at the beginning of this whole conversation, are basically logistics companies moving stuff around from location to location, whether that's another store, outlet, rag yard, landfill, especially the Goodwill. The Goodwill is like such a massive operation that they are constantly moving inventory around to other stores, over to the bins, and then off to other places where it's going to be processed. I mean, they are like, they probably own their own trucks, I would assume. Right. Shipping and trucking expenses across the board have been at record highs since the beginning of the pandemic. Yes, and they're only going up. They're only going up. Some people are saying they're leveling out. I mean, at least like overseas shipping seems to be leveling out, but like there is a shortage of truck drivers. Mm-hmm. Guess what gets driven around in trucks like nonstop? Our secondhand stuff. Yeah. Like it is just truck after truck. So it's more expensive even to just move stuff around to where it needs to go. On top of that, donations like legendarily <laughs> increased oh during God. the pandemic, meaning there was even more stuff to move around. And then of course it's costing more to move around. So that definitely drove up a lot of costs. And I am not a goodwill apologist, but I'm sure that they have they have struggled to make the numbers work. Mm-hmm. It's probably cutting in all those executive bonuses. Well, poor thing. Another, 
Those poor CEOs. I hope they're okay. <laughs> poor CEOs, Actually, yeah. no, they're, it's not cutting into their bonuses. Who are you kidding? No, you're right. They're, they're taking it out. I was going to say their bonuses the are yeah. definitely just getting fatter. There's no yeah, way probably, they're taking any cuts out of that. They're probably just doing sneaky things like not giving health insurance to their employees by keeping them under like the full time threshold or, you know, cutting everybody's hours across the whole across the board so that everybody has to do the work of three people. Yeah, I'm sure she will like sprinkle that. in a little wage theft here and there. Yeah, all the good yeah, stuff. All the hit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it's also interesting that you were saying that, you know, the donation volume has increased. That has also probably contributed to rising costs as well because man, oh man, is that a lot of work to sort and process the mountains and mountains of stuff that we're dumping. And I know that in previous episodes, um, especially the one with Dylan who works or worked at one of these thrift stores, talked about people Mm -hmm. donating garbage literal garbage yeah and that's a huge part of the job a huge part of people working at these places is to just literally sort through trash moldy wet clothes clothes that has like god knows what on it and that is a lot of labor it's a lot of time and that costs these stores money and again you know if they're going to be spending more money on labor they're not taking it out of their bonuses or salaries they're going to find ways to take it from somewhere else, and that may mean increasing the prices of the clothing. For sure. Also, donation volume increased so much during the pandemic. And I do think that was a function of two things. One, people being home, deciding they were going to, like, clean out their houses, etc. But two, people – I look at people, their lives during the pandemic, right? And there were people who had a lot of money because they still had jobs – but they weren't traveling anywhere or going out to dinner and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Then there were people who were, I was in this category who were like, oh my God, are we soon not going to have a place to live? Because I don't have a job and I don't have any money coming in and life keeps going on, you know? But the people who kind of came out on top, who still had their jobs and were saving all this money because they were just sitting at home, can we just talk about how much shit they bought during the pandemic? Yeah. Exercise equipment, all kinds of stuff from Amazon, craft kits, new hobbies they were taking on. They had to get a bunch of new sweatpants to wear, cookbooks, appliances, you name it. All the stuff that they bought that they probably aren't even using anymore and probably are making their way to the Goodwill. And I do think that it is no coincidence that I'm seeing so much Shein in thrift stores now because I think people were buying a buttload of that yeah. during like the peak of the pandemic. People, I think, were also shopping optimistically in the hopes that the pandemic was going to be shorter or like quicker than it has been. Um, you mm-hmm. know, as we all know, it's still ongoing. And I think that a lot mm-hmm. of people thought that lockdown, you know, me included, we thought, oh, you know, this will be like a few weeks. And remember, it was going to end by Easter. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people were also buying in the hopes that they were going to go to that wedding. They were going to celebrate their birthday. They were going to go on that vacation they had planned. And as all mm-hmm. of those things got canceled and the clothes sat around in their closet, they, you know, by the time people were able to do those things, they were like, well, that's not new anymore. I don't want to wear that. I totally agree with that. And then people, you know, and I get this because we're not accustomed to being home for months and years on end, right? And unable to see people or do the things that we normally do. People picked up hobbies like putting together puzzles. Mm -hmm. They did things to help themselves cope 
with this shift, which I no judgment there. But the reality is in like the past year, year and a half, we have been forced to pretend as if the pandemic is over and go back to work and pretend everything is okay. And we no longer need puzzles or all these other things that we bought to keep us busy and kind of keep us hopeful. Yeah, I mean, or during those hard times. Or sadly, a lot of people, you know, picked up hobbies that they actually were really passionate about and really loved and are no longer able to continue doing them because we have Mm -hmm. been forced back to work. Um, You know, a lot of people are just don't have any leisure time anymore, sadly, or Mm -hmm. they don't have, you know, government assistance they may have been receiving at the time. And so that hobby that they loved doing that brought them a lot of joy just like doesn't have their life doesn't have space for it anymore. Yeah. So we're seeing we're seeing more stuff than being donated. Absolutely. People are forced into this weird position that we're all in now. So in 2021. The donation volume was so high. And I can remember this. I remember we moved out to central Pennsylvania, out to Amish country at the end of 2020. And I remember January, February, March, like I I don't think thrift stores were open. Mm -hmm. But we were like, until we got vaccinated, the only places Dustin and I ever went were to like get groceries or pet food. And it was like a whole mission, right? We were practically in like hazmat suits to go do it. And we would drive by this Goodwill that was a couple miles from our house. And there would just be mountains of stuff all over the parking lot because people were dumping it there. But the store wasn't even open. Like, employees weren't in there. It wasn't, you know, the state wasn't allowing them to be open, right? And so this apparently got so out of hand that Goodwill, who, once again, I have no sympathy for, but I saw this playing out in real life, they went on kind of like a PR blitz where they spoke to just like every newspaper, the Today Show, radio programs, NPR, you name it, saying, hey, you're all donating way too much garbage to us. You're leaving stuff out in the rain and snow and it's turning into garbage because of that. You're you're dropping off hazardous materials like gas and old batteries and broken televisions and stuff like that. Like, You have to stop doing that. And it seemed like every, you know, the way the Goodwill works is that it's not like they're districts per se, but they're like areas, Mm -hmm. right? And they each kind of run as their own division of Goodwill. And every division out there was reporting that they had spent millions of dollars in disposal fees just in that first part of 2021 because of all that garbage. And as we've said, if you think that the executives at Goodwill are going to say like, oh, I'll just take a cut in my bonus or my salary to cover all those disposal fees. You are wrong. We are living in la-la land if you think that's what's going to happen. I mean, did they take it out in in employees? For sure. But they also took it from us as customers Mm -hmm. by raising prices. Yeah. And I mean, that also goes back to this idea that like, you know, there's good stuff out there that is not able to go into the hands of anyone else because it's being dumped like when someone throws a bag of clothes like the goodwill bin is overflowing goodwill's not open and they just dump the stuff in the parking lot what happens when it rains what happens when a you know rat decides to go make a nest out of the bag that you dropped Uh, off like then all of that stuff becomes garbage whether or not it was garbage when you donated it Oh, totally. I remember specifically driving by that Goodwill near our house, and it had just snowed just a little bit. Yeah, that's all it takes, no, right? Soaking and wet. 
every I mean it was just it's garbage it um, automatically piled. becomes garbage it's also just a safety hazard to ask the employees to like open all the bags and try and save what's dry they're not going to do that no they're, they're not going to do it that all and, it's all it's and all the trash. general also doesn't want to pay for that time yeah. right so what they did is they just threw it all away and we're talking couches electronics clothes home goods books records you name it it's all gone I bet there was all kinds of cool stuff in there too yeah absolutely um and it was just people behaving irresponsibly well, you know, also, like, as we're, we have said multiple times, thrift stores, whether they're small and associated with a charity or they're large for-profit, like, say, savers, they're all in the business to make money, mm-hmm. whether it's to pay shareholders or to pay the owner or to support their charitable causes. So th- the reality is that thrift stores of all sizes are getting savvier about making as much money as they can off of their donations. Yes. Uh, this is from that Wall Street Journal article again. Bill Parrish, senior consultant in donated goods retail for Goodwill Industries International, said that while there has not been a set price increase across the board at the nonprofit's retail locations, each Goodwill organization adjusts its pricing periodically to ensure that they are in line with the value of the category of items provided. And I don't really shop at the Goodwill, as I mentioned, but I do also like to I mean, there aren't as many here, but back in Pennsylvania, all my favorite thrift stores were either run by the Mennonite women or they were just associated with like one church or organization in the area. So they were just like one location kind of thing. And all of them had eBay pages where they were selling the high value stuff. They also, and I don't know if this is just a central Pennsylvania thing, but they would always have an area in the front where you could silent auction, like bid on things. Oh, interesting. Um, And like that they... It was always amazing vintage stuff. Like I got a, I got a, a little people McDonald's from the eighties from one of those auctions. Um, so it was always like it would always be stuff where I'd be like, I can't believe I'm seeing this in real <laughs> life, you know. But like once again, they could have put it out on the floor for ten bucks or something. But they're saying like, no, we want to get the maximum value. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing also is that you know this idea that resellers are the reason for price increases. I mean, firstly, like, no customer has control over the way items are priced. It's not a customer thing. That's the store. The stores are setting the prices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's also no data to actually support the argument that resellers are the reason that prices – like, there's no solid I've, – I've tried looking. I've tried to see if there's any sort of, like, numbers behind that, and there are, like – I've seen anecdotes of people saying that, like, you know, we see more resellers and, like, maybe, like, one manager in one thrift location will say, like, we need a price up because of the resellers. But there's actually no evidence that this is the case. Yeah, I mean, I I looked and looked and looked for data that said that there are more resellers. I would assume at this point, like, someone like, say, the Goodwill who has those resources would have a statistic then I'll also just say, like, as a pretty regular thrifter, the only time I really see any significant and very obvious reseller action is at the bins. Yeah. That's where I'll see people who have been camped out there all day with a humongous mountain. Right. And in which case, stuff. like, people should be Good going in there taking as much stuff as possible yeah. because that's the last step for a lot of those mm-hmm. items. Yeah. Yeah. And if anything, I'll just say, 
rising prices in thrift stores actually deter resellers. Yeah, they hurt resellers probably like equally as much as they do the average shopper. Again, a lot of people really rely on resale. And if that's the difference between you being able to pay rent that month, then, you know, that could be a huge hit to you to see these prices go up. So like nobody wants that, including the resellers. Yeah, yeah. It's also, I found it so interesting that like, you know, prices have gone up for basically everything recently. Like in New York, at least where I am, groceries are very expensive right oh, now. It's same in Austin. It's really, it's really like horrifying and shocking how much certain things cost. Yeah. Yeah. And the only things that have not gotten more expensive or haven't gone up in price are fast fashion and wages. Yes. I'm like, that's it. I'm like, that's not, that's not interesting. Very convenient that the only things that seem to be getting cheaper are low-quality clothing, and no one's wages have seemed to gone up, go up. I mean, this is like the quandary of our time because clothes, brand new clothes are cheaper now than they were in the 90s, and I can assure you that nothing else is, including thrift store prices. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't know why people are surprised to see thrift store prices being higher. What I mean, it's not as wild as grocery prices are. Sometimes... We go to the grocery store and it like fills me with such dread now because I'm just like, how bad is this going to be, you know? Yeah. But it's like way more affordable for us to eat at home than eat out right. at this point. So it's like, oh, we just, and we have to eat to stay alive. So there's the quandary, right? I think this also ties into this idea that if a thrift store is, you know, charging $12 for pants and they used to charge 7 or, you know, that $5 difference means that someone is no longer a, a, able to afford those pants, that is an entirely different issue in itself. Mm-hmm. There is so much wealth and abundance in this country. It is really disturbing that there are people who genuinely cannot afford to spend $5 more on a pair of pants. And... This is an inequality issue. This is not a resellers are making thrift stores more expensive issue. This is a why can someone not afford $12 pants issue. And, you know, that a lot of times it's a racial justice issue. It's about exploitation of labor. It's a lack of government resources. It, it's about our broken healthcare system, wage theft. Like, there are all these other reasons that we should all be angry. There's so much to be upset about. Why are we yelling at resellers? Why is that the problem here? That's not the problem. Like, everyone should be able to go out and afford nice things. People should be able to not only buy the things that they need, but buy the things that they want. Like, people should be able to treat themselves. People should be able to get good, nice quality clothing that fits them, that makes them feel good. And the reason that people are unable to do that has nothing to do with individuals reselling clothing. No, it's no. It's just like a totally unrelated issue. And we have so much to rightfully be upset about. I would love to see people channel that energy into the actual problems in this country yes, like, and others. Like let's let's talk about how grocery stores have raised prices when they didn't need to. Yep. To be more profitable. Or like okay. how gas prices went up and then all of the gas companies were making like crazy profits. Crazy profits. Like that's pretty upsetting. But, yeah, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it, there's just so many things to be angry about. And it feels like we're taking a lot of our anger out in the wrong places. Which I think is like a very human. It's, it's a very human behavior, Absolutely. right? But 
I guess, you know, one of the reasons we're having this conversation is because I really want people to hear this who may be channeling that rage and that frustration towards resellers and take that moment and say, oh, whoa, there are these like way bigger things that if all of us channeled it together, we might be able to make some change there. Yeah, definitely. Being angry at resellers on TikTok literally doesn't make the world a better place in any way at all, period. <laughs> and the resellers also struggling with how hard it is to afford to find a place to find a place of live that you can afford or getting freaked out by the checkout at the grocery when you see how much it is or not being able to see a dentist or a doctor, you know, like these are the these resellers are people just like us with all the same fears and worries. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. Okay. So I have two uh, messages from thrift store employees on the subject of pricing and inventory and whatnot. So the first one is an anonymous thrift store employee who works currently for a big for-profit thrift chain. Mm-hmm. She said, in terms of increase in prices, I have noticed a slight increase in prices, and I've heard customers talk about it recently, too. I'm not too sure as to why they are increasing. I would guess from inflation as a whole. Our production team in the back handles prices, and since I work on the sales floor, I do not get trained in how things get priced. In terms of a decreased volume in good stuff, she says, honestly, I've not seen that. For my store, at least, there's good items and bad items. It seems to vary from week to week, but more often than not, I could fill up a cart full of good items. In terms of thrift stores being busier than usual, I would say, in my experience, yes. I can only work Saturday, Sunday because I'm in school, but I have noticed over the past few weeks that more people are coming in the door, and it's a wide range between teenagers, younger crowd, and adults that seem to be shopping there out of necessity rather than leisure. She said, regarding resellers, I haven't seen that many, but I've heard from my coworkers that the resellers tend to come in the morning, but I usually close on the weekend, so I'm not there until later in the day. I do know that most of the resellers tend to go to the Goodwill outlet store, aka the bins, as it leads to more profits. She said, we get a lot of stuff every week, but that is a production team problem. I was briefly told how long things stay during my training, and since it's not my task to rotate things on and off the floor, I cannot remember specifically how long things tend to stay on the floor. I have noticed that clothes tend to get rotated and taken off the sales floor more quickly than household goods such as books, mugs, etc. I know all of the things that get taken off the floor get packaged, and according to her employer, they're sent to third world countries. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, well, we know that these things are being sent to the global south. Yeah, especially to for-profit chain as well. Yeah, yeah, that makes for sense. Sure. They are, and they are selling that off. Yeah. They're not donating it. Yeah. Now, Weenie works for a small local thrift as a sorter and a manager of the vintage section, which sounds like a pretty awesome job to me. Mm-hmm. She said, "Our prices have stayed about the same since I've worked there for two years." I started during the pandemic, but I did notice a rise in Goodwill and VOA prices in the area a few years ago. We get tons of new stuff, especially new clothes with tags still on them. Being a sorter, I see a lot of clothes. A lot of them are unsellable, which are smushed into big bales and shipped to Canada for distribution to other countries. She said at least that's what they say. We get a lot of resellers, mainly the same crew who swoop right in when we open to snatch all the good stuff, which kind of upsets me sometimes. I understand that's how they make a living, but some can be aggressive and just don't give a hoot about anyone else. It's almost like they're addicted, (laughs) which I can I have seen people like that for sure. We get donations of probably 50 to 70 pallets each week. 
clothes, hard goods, everything together except furniture before it's sorted. Most of the stuff will sit on the sales floor until it sells, but once in a while we do a big pool and throw away or recycle what we can. Clothing is definitely the big problem in this world. We get way too much. I would say 70% of what we get is clothes. I say fast fashion is the problem and also cheap imported clothes. I've seen tons more wish type clothes coming in that have the little white size tag, but no other labels. Mm. We definitely sell mostly clothing and most of our, many of our customers get free clothes with vouchers through churches, etc. We get so many winter hats, gloves, scarves that we give most away in a free bin. Books too. I would say books are another big donated item. What I dig about our store is how much we do to help the community. We even help pay people's bills and vouchers for mattresses. It's nice to see my actual boss, our store director, listening to our clients' stories and having an office area for people to come get help. It's nice to work with people who care about people, not money so much, which I have unfortunately seen at prior thrifts. Wow, that sounds like a really nice thrift store. It does. But even they, this is a small thrift store, like community mm-hmm. oriented, is still getting just crazy amounts of clothes. It's a lot of stuff. 50 to 70 pallets a week. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. And just 70% of that being clothing. Like, I mean, I think by now in this episode, you're all picking up on the idea that there's too much clothing in the world. Yes. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at wear underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? 
Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns, handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed, made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at Republica underscore Unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicware, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicware in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicware recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicware offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre-loved decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print-worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home. Responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans, with something for every budget. Discover more at thepewterthimble.com. Thank you again to Alex for spending almost four hours talking to me. She'll be back for one last installment on this series next week, although... I'm kind of like already low-key wondering if she needs to come back for a fourth part. I don't know. I am so grateful for her time, her expertise, her research, her attention to detail. I hope you are too. You can find her on Instagram as at where underscore St. Evans. You can check out her shop at wherestevens.com. And I'll also share all of that in the show notes. I have one last audio recording to share in this episode, which I know this is a long episode. I'm sorry. There's just so much to talk about. (laughs) Anyway, this audio recording is from Vilma. This one came in past the deadline, so I received it after Alex and I recorded, but I thought it was important for you to hear. Vilma is a former thrift store employee who is now getting started as a reseller, so let's take a listen. (laughs) 
Hi, Amanda. My name is Vilma, and I used to work for the SPCA thrift store, um, which all their proceeds go towards the uh, Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. That's what it stands for. Um, so all their proceeds go towards helping the cats and the dogs um, that they were saved. So they're a no-kill shelter here in Reno, Nevada. And yeah, my experience was interesting because although they're, you know, the proceeds I fully supported, um, you know, the, the nonprofit and their organization, um, I would say within the first few days of working, um, I noticed the guys in the back, so that basically take the items from the back that are donated, would take specific items that they think are high price and then bring them towards the front. So that could include jewelry, like gold, even fake jewelry, um, bags, shoes, things like that. And that would go in the case up front. So the staff up front who deals with customer service, we would then, we're told to Google the item and, and kind of see what the price, the retail price was. Um, and what was interesting is that in this first week of working that I was actually told, cause I was like, well, how do you guys know if it's authentic or not? Cause you know, that's something, um, that they did admit was that they're not professionals in, you know, necessarily like high end items like that, or even jewelry so that there's no really way to tell. And they said, well, we just, you know, Google it and try to do our best. But that one time they actually did resell a coach purse that was inauthentic for, I think they put a price tag on it of $150 and then ended up selling it. It just like never sold. I think customers knew better. And, um, each, every couple of weeks they do discount these items. So I think the bag ended up selling for 75% off the ticket price and it was still sold for about $50. Um, so the lady never brought it back, um, but they, I, I think she did actually and, and mentioned it. So they weren't aware that it was inauthentic until she brought it back, but she was okay with that discounted price and decided to keep it. Uh, but she did warn them that it was inauthentic. Yeah, that probably should have been like a red flag for them to really take care and notice that they aren't selling, um, you know, fake items to customers for high prices, but um, I think the overall thing that I noticed was that they do know that resellers are coming in and making a lot of money um, and buying things for very cheap. So things like bags um, and jewelry, they definitely try to profit off of. Um, we once had a saddle that was listed for about $300. And I think buying it brand new, because I, I did research the brand, probably cost less than that um, because it wasn't a really high-end saddle. This is for a horse. The only increase in prices was really that, so the high-end products. I mean, it was just a little crazy to see price tags such as $300, $400 in a thrift store um, when, again, they're not even really checking for the authenticity of it. I think it is pretty busy. Um, I think in Reno, there's a lot of thrift stores in general and a lot of people like to thrift, they enjoy it. Um, there are particularly a lot of resellers here as well, um, not necessarily online, but um, we have a lot of flea markets. So um, people from that community would come in and buy because um, sometimes we get donations since we're a nonprofit donations from stores like Levi's would send in hundreds of wallets that we would resell for $5. And um, these 
flea market resellers would buy all of those, you know, wallets and then sell them at a higher price at the flea market. I think we would have pretty high selling points. When I came in, they were definitely transitioning to, they got a new manager, a sales manager who purposefully like rearranged the store um, because she had done a lot of research on selling and how to sell more. So definitely doing a lot of like, um, you know, red tag sales, a lot of promoting. We would do bin sales. Um, She even put shoes at eye level instead of having shoes in one space. That's really common in more of those consignment stores is having the shoes at eye level um, and kind of scattered throughout the store above the clothes. So we rearranged a lot and sales increased quite substantially. Um, she would, you know, kind of show us numbers, things like that. And they were selling, um, I think I want to say about four grand per day. Um, so making quite a bit. And for the things that didn't sell, they would have basically like a, a separate store. It was connected to the store, but it was the back um, where it's all like red ticket items. You can buy clothes by the pound. And um, I think what I really liked is that they tried not to throw a lot away. A lot of it did end up in the dumpster if it was there for months. Um, maybe even some items might have a ticket that on it from a year ago that would typically end up in the trash can, such as puzzles, games. Um, and then for clothing, they would actually donate a lot of the clothing to the Boys and Girls Clubs or Big Brothers Big Sisters. They would have a big truck come by at the end of the month and just pick up, I mean, I'm saying like probably 20 to 30 trash bag fulls of clothing that was not sold from our outlet center. That's what it's called, the outlet center. Um, so that's where they would donate that. And then the books would be donated to another local nonprofit that's um, called Grassroots, and they sell used books. So they would try to be really you know, mindful about donating off these items to other organizations that could use them and benefit from them. Um, but there was a huge, even paintings, like putting really high price tags on paintings. And we even had microscopes that we were told to, you know, kind of check the quality of it, research it and all of that so that we could sell it for a higher price tag. Um, and some items, again, were being sold for more than the price tag. I think a backpack was being sold for what it was worth on Amazon, brand new when it was used. Um, so I think, you know, that probably could have used some discretion, maybe talking to a few people before putting a price tag on it and checking for more authenticity. I think it should go through a couple more, you know, or maybe get um, staff trained, particularly in that, if they want to do that. But we would have a lot of angry customers, um, kind of arguing, you know, trying to finagle the price down because of this, especially if they were experts in that area, um, they would really be the ones to kind of catch on and say, this is not okay. Um, so that was my experience and thank you so much for listening. I hope it's helpful and I love what you're doing. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Vilma brings up a lot of good points here for one Resellers are not just online resellers. I'm glad she reminded us of flea market sellers, but I've also been at the bins and other more bulk secondhand shopping places. And I've encountered a lot of people there who actually are buying for their own secondhand stores that aren't vintage, 
but are just serving families. Also, the donated brand new stuff from retailers. This is something that has picked up so much momentum in the past decade because it allows retailers who at this point have become notorious for overproducing, buying way too much inventory. It allows them to write it off as a donation and they don't have to cover the cost of disposing of these things because yes, that gets expensive. So passing it off to the thrift store is a great deal for these retailers and the thrift stores, they eat it up, right? If you've seen an entire aisle of brand new Zara at the Salvation Army or just so much brand new Target stuff at Goodwill, this is how that happened. And next, the fact that thrift stores are a business, which we've been saying a lot, and as part of that, they want to sell as much stuff as possible, just like any other business. That means they re-merchandise, they make the store more appealing, they try to make the store environment and experience feel more like a regular store. In fact, every time secondhand shopping becomes more mainstream and trendy, which happens every other decade or so, these thrift stores lean into merchandising and they start opening stores in high traffic middle-class neighborhoods so they can cash in on the trend. Lastly, did you catch all the other stuff we've been talking about in this episode? The drive to price things at true market value, the excess clothing, the excess stuff as a whole? Thank you, Vilma, for taking the time to record that. She also told me to let you know this. I forgot to mention how there were so many donations per week that we often had to turn customers away. Our donation hours were only Thursday to Sunday, and our warehouse would be packed. We were a huge two-floor thrift store for reference. Man, just the thought of thrift stores receiving that volume of donations when we know, as we discussed at the top of this episode, that many people are finding other channels for their unwanted stuff before donating, well, it definitely underscores the overconsumption happening in our society right now. I want to thank everyone who contributed to this episode. Tamara, Amy, Maria, Amanda, Christine, Vilma, and Weenie. I'm so grateful for your time and your thoughtful contributions to the conversation. And if I mispronounce your name, you have no idea how apologetic I am. I am so tired of people introducing me as Amanda McCarthy when we all know I'm Amanda McCarty. <laughs> it's been a whole lifetime of it. <laughs> if you have thoughts regarding the topics we discussed this week, send them my way via email. Remember, DMs are going to be turned off on Instagram. You can send those messages to me at amanda at closehorse.world. Bonus points if you record an audio message. I actually would prefer to not read someone else's writing. It's really difficult for me to do well. <laughs> We'll be back next week with part three of this series where we will dig into the final myth. Resellers misrepresent what they're selling, list things at wildly inflated prices, and overall behave miserably both online and in person. Whew. We'll also talk about how resellers increase access to secondhand shopping rather than, you know, taking all the good stuff. And we'll talk about something that might surprise you or might not, the community 
that has arisen out of resale. I also want to remind you just again that over at the department, my other podcast, we are working on a series of episodes that pair with this series. It's all about the history of secondhand shopping as a retail, social, and fashion trend. And spoiler alert, shopping secondhand as a mainstream trend is nothing new. Part three of that series will be coming on Tuesday, April 11th, so soon. And parts one and two are already out there for the listening. Basically between the first two parts of this series here and the first two parts of the department, you have like a full eight-hour shift of listening to me talk about secondhand. Hashtag blessed, right? Anyway, that's all I have for this week. So thank you again for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Written, researched, edited, hosted, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you're hearing, of course, I would love for you to leave a rating, maybe even a review on Apple Podcasts, but most importantly, tell your friends. Tell anyone who will listen. If you'd like to support my work financially, you can learn more at patreon.com slash podcast. You can also find other ways to support my work financially in my Instagram profile, where you'll find me as at Podcast. Thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support. And I will see you all next week. Bye. Bye.